are you? I'm great. And today we are thrilled to welcome to the Disability Stage Right podcast, Debbie Patterson. Debbie is a Winnipeg playwright, director, and actor, and is someone who I've looked up to and whose theatrical accomplishments I've aspired really to emulate for pretty much my whole adult life when I really think about it. She's a founding member of Shakespeare in the Ruins here in Winnipeg. She's been an artistic associate of Prairie Theatre Exchange, and in 2010 was theater ambassador for Winnipeg's cultural capital year, if I remember correctly. Uh, She's also the founder and artistic director of Sick and Twisted Theater uh, more recently. So welcome, Debbie, to Disability Stage Right. Thank you. And to kick off this interview, we were hoping, Debbie, that we could ask you to introduce and describe yourself a little bit to our audience. Sure. Uh, Hi, I'm Debbie. Uh, I'm a white person with brown hair. I am wearing a blue shirt. I use a wheelchair, uh, which is purple and has a good cup holder on it that can hold a whole bottle of wine. Um, nice. What else can I say? I have blue eyes. Uh, I gesture too much. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Great. As do I. So, um, Debbie, you mentioned in your description that you are the user of a funky purple wheelchair. And mm-hmm. so can you tell us uh, our, and our audience, have you been a wheelchair user your whole theatrical professional life? No, I am, uh, I am a, a recent, fairly recent wheelchair user. Um, I guess I've been using my wheelchair full time for a little over two years. Um, I, I was able to have, like, I, I was able to get training and have a 20-year career as a theater artist before uh, mobility changes started to happen, which, um, which transformed my practice as an artist, I guess. Um, yeah, so I feel like among my disabled peers, I'm quite privileged in that I was able to get training and, and work quite consistently for a long period of time before I had to confront the ableism in our industry. Okay, this is coming right to the heart of all the things we want to talk about here on Disability Stage Right. So much so that I almost don't know where to start. Um, (laughs) uh, So um, one of the things, because you not only trained as an actor, but trained at one of the foremost institutions in the country at National Theatre School, am I correct? Um, So I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about your, either your training at NTS and or uh, muse a bit about how your training opportunities may have been different if, if you had not been non-disabled at the time um, as a starting point. Sure. I think if I was, uh, if I was as mobile then as I am now, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to train at National Theatre School. Um, our training was extremely physical. Uh, uh, I loved it. It was really valuable and felt like, I felt like I, I learned about my body in ways that I never would have if I hadn't had that training. And actually in ways that have been super useful to me as I've transitioned into different kinds of ability, um, like specifically Alexander technique has been hugely helpful 
as I've you know, started limping and then using a cane and then using crutches and now using a wheelchair, having, having those uh, principles of the Alexander technique in my back pocket have been really a, a great resource as a, as a person transitioning through disability. So but, if, yes, yes, but I would not, I would not have had this training if I was able the way I am now at that time. So th- reflecting on that, um, you know, one of the questions that I get asked, and I think as someone who appears non-disabled, I'm a safe person uh, for you know, theater professors and, and to ask sometimes or to say things like, uh, well, I, I don't know how to teach somebody who uses a wheelchair or, well, I can't teach voice to someone with cerebral palsy because I don't know how to do that. Um, and I was wondering, uh, I, and I think that your observations about how your physical training has been useful to you in all your different um you know, phases of life and as you, you know, transitioned, how you moved around. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, if, if you've had any, I bet that you have given some thought to the question of how, you know, is training possible for someone who does move differently? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely, it's possible. Um, and I, I will confess that my, my thinking on this has changed a lot over the last five to 10 years, I'd say. Um, Yeah, when I first started limping, I I thought, well, that's it. I have to give up performing because my training had been so physical and it was so much about, you know, having absolute total physical control over your whole body as sort of a necessary part of being an actor, right? Um, And while I still feel like that's a valuable tool to have as an actor, I don't think it's a deal breaker, obviously. Um, but that's, and, and that's been a slow transition in my own thinking and my own sort of internalized ableism around how we make theater. Um, I do think you can train, uh, train artists with different abilities to be performers, obviously. Um, one big sort of switch in my thinking came when I was watching Cirque du Soleil. And I was watching these these, um, incredible acrobats doing incredibly dangerous things. And I felt like I was on the edge of my seat watching them because I was worried about them falling. And then I realized that what I was doing is what people do when they watch me walk across the room. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was so unsteady, right? And, And when I walk, it's kind of riveting, right? When I could walk a little bit. And now when I walk, oh my God, is that riveting. Um, <laughs> but I, I kind of felt like there's, there is something incredibly compelling about the way I, as a disabled person, move through the world. And it is, it is all by itself theatrical. It is not as versatile a storytelling tool as it was when I could do anything with my body but it is certainly extremely theatrical. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned all of the, all of the things about uh, learning about your body and your, in your training um, when you had full use of it. Um, I kind of, I kind of went through a similar process when I went through some of my theater training where I, um, unlike you, as I've mentioned in 
previous episodes of the show, I, I've, I was born with cerebral palsy and I've always had limited use of my body, but I was able to, to the theater training, learn so much about my body and, and, and the way that it functions and the way that it could function when put in those weird corners of, wait, can I, can I do this? Can I do comedia the way it's, the way it quote unquote should be done? Like, and the answer is yes. Did I, did I in, in the training most of the time? No, because we didn't quite know, know how that works. And it was a question of, okay, how much time do I put in figuring that out versus how much time do I put in just learning the technique and, and then channeling it through the work that I do later in my career. Um, and I can just, I can just relate a lot to um, what I, what I gleaned as that sense of, in your case, rediscovery, but in my case, discovery about the way I could approach theater when, when faced with a lot of, I don't know if this is going to work both for me and my, um, professors who, who I am, I am eternally grateful for, for taking me on and, and like taking that, that leap of faith with me to figure out if we could do this. Um, so yeah, there, there's just a lot there. And then I wonder um, if you could, this is a, this is a big question. Um, and maybe, maybe we save your answer for the end if you want some time to think about it. But if me, Oh God, it was eight years ago when I started theater school already, wow. Um, if me from eight years ago came to you now and said, I wanna do theater, I wanna learn some theater as I go into, cause I mostly went for film school, but I wanna learn some theater as I go for film school. Can I, and what are some of the things that I should look out for as I not only, um, start the classes and do the work, but as I'm going in to meet the professors and are there, are there things that I should um, disclose, discuss, uh, put off limits, be more assertive that yes, I can do this, those kinds of questions. Um, yeah. Okay, well, that's a big question because it, it, uh, it encompasses uh, dealing with with preconceived ideas or assumptions that people have about what people with disabilities are capable of. And that is like a huge can of, can yeah. of words, uh, especially, around, especially around artistic endeavors. Um, but it also deals with like practically, how is this gonna work? And, yeah. and sort of internally, how do I advocate for my own needs and how do I, you know, express what I need or, or seek adaptations to, to allow me to participate in ways that, and, and whose responsibility is it to, yeah. And I guess that's the create the adaptations. Yeah. My question is like to, to sort of simplify it. Cause like you said, that is a large question and yeah. a large can of worms. How, how do you approach um, now, how do you approach advocacy for yourself both in terms of, uh, you know, auditioning and even approaching, you know, a, a theater company about 
that isn't your own, for example, about directing a show, and right. and and the and the the concerns that they may have around you using a chair and and oh no, do we need to like rebuild our entire theater? Like, what's the? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, okay. As a they're they're completely different things, right? Because as a performer, yeah. you like we all have to make this work, right? Yeah, we do. The I job. will be I'll be cast in the show because they want what I'm bringing. And yeah. so we all have to work together to address the access needs within the performance, right? So like like things like when we worked on on Kill Me Now, right? We had, I, I was in meetings with the designers before we went into rehearsals where yeah. I was advocating for, for access for you, right? So, so yeah. they said, oh, this is the platform. And, and I was like, okay, but where's their lip on the platform? So, you know, yeah. Miles is safe, right? Like, where's, and, and these are the costumes. And I'm like, okay, well, he's not going to change his pants in 30 seconds off stage. Yeah. I don't care how many people are helping, right? So, exactly. like, just those practical considerations of, like, like I'm not going to change my shoes in the middle of this show. It's yeah. just not going to happen, right? Like, yeah. like, simple things like that. Like, like and, and, and for years, I've been I've been having to advocate for costume adjustments, you know, especially with shoes because I use a brace a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, shoes are a big thing, but you know, just like insisting that I have a meeting with the designer early on in the process so I can identify areas that might be a problem or mm -hmm. that, you know, things that the designer needs to consider because people don't know that when you're in a manual wheelchair, if you have like big frilly sleeves, they're gonna look like shit in two minutes. Oh yeah. <laughs> the, the mud or the whatever, they'll get snagged on your wheels. Like you can't, you know, there are different things that you just have to be aware of that that like I can help a designer design a better costume for me if they yeah. talk to me, right? So let's work together to address the access needs within the show. And I wanna say that this is no different from any other actor because I went to a production of Richard III where an able-bodied actor was wearing a specially built shoe to make him limp, to, you know, with a, like a sole that was like two inches thicker than the other shoe, right? That was providing that actor, that able-bodied actor with a device to create access so that they could play a disabled character. Yep. That was an artistic choice and artistic expense. And anything the theaters do to accommodate my body on their stages is no different from what they were doing to accommodate that actor's body on their stage. And, exactly. and so I have, I have a big problem with, with theaters who consider these things access expenses rather than artistic expenses or something That's... extraordinary that they're doing for me when in fact they're providing access. They're considering the access needs of all the able-bodied actors in the space already. Well, when we did Kill Me Now, I went in early to see about um the bathtub sequence right and and it was at that point that they had mentioned to me that they were you know i think the the exact phrasing was corey how's your back corey wojic played my father in the show and and they they, they were discussing him getting me out of the tub um and he's like oh i, I he's like how much do you weigh miles and i'm like uh 140 ish he's like i can get you out no problem and i said cool but here's the thing, let's get a lift instead because four shows in, your back's gonna hate me. Like, mm -hmm. 
and and there was a little bit of um, uh, surprise in the sense of like, oh, what do you mean a back lift? And I'm like, well, there's these contraptions that might have been the word that I chose too, um, that it, that like raise and lower in and out of the tub to make transfers easier. And there was there was a, a sense of of shock. And then came the question was, well, do you need it, Miles? And I went, well, if you want Corey's back to not fall apart and turn right. to dust four shows in, yes. Right. And then so the lift was not to accommodate you, but to accommodate Corey. Exactly. It gave Corey access. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It was to and and most importantly, I think it artistically created this beautiful moment yes. in which no one got injured. Um, but we were able to see at the beginning of the show the dad giving his son a bath, lifting him out of the tub, drying him off, getting him in his chair. And it was able to be repeated through two runs of the show in two different cities without anyone getting injured. And it was authentic because that's what I grew up with. That's, that's, that's what I, you know, that was my whole childhood of getting in and out of the tub. So there's that extra layer, like, like we said, of, of making it authentic and making it, you know, believable. And oh, well. it gave us an artistic opportunity because the speed of the lift was quite slow and it <laughs> extended this moment of you rising slowly out of the tub. And it was like, it was this really great moment of suspense and, and just like had the audience on the edge of their seat. It yeah. offered an artistic opportunity that wouldn't have been there without the disability. And, mm -hmm. and the same, I would say, uh, that entire scene, which is was one of the highlights of that that show for me. Um, and all three of us worked on this show. Kill me now mm -hmm. for uh, listeners who may not magically know that for any reason. Um, I came on a little bit later after Debbie and Miles had had discovered a lot of these things and helped the artistic team discover some of the things. And Debbie, I think it actually was recommended that I be hired to help with some of the access needs and mm -hmm. then being a backstage aide for Miles. Um, but what I loved about that opening scene um, is because Miles, you were coming out of the tub and you were totally naked, like yeah. one tends to be in the tub, which <laughs> is always a, a like, a, I think an incredible act of generosity for an actor and that and then Corey uh, dressed you on stage as yeah. is called for in the script. Um, and it, it, it is not an instantaneous process for someone to dress somebody else who's slightly cold and your muscles are a little bit stiff and all of that. And so that entire scene took uh, more time than perhaps the playwright had imagined when he wrote it and when it had been done previous times with non-disabled people pretending to be someone with a disability. Um, but without fail, I heard from and we all heard at talkbacks from just dozens if not hundreds of people about how riveting that scene was and yeah. and that back to the body and the opportunities for your body to be trained in physical movement and for your professors and teachers and directors to look at movement of your body and not just movement of your wheelchair as the way that you express movement. Or I think, movement of the scene as it's written. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it's just such you, your everybody's body is giving this huge gift to, 
and your bodies, your body in that scene, Miles, it was so, gave such an incredible gift to the scene in every, in every way. And I feel like we, uh, as a theater community, need to find ways to not only essentially like exploit the gifts of both of your disabled <laughs> bodies, but also to uh, train and support and embrace and, and include in every way. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. <laughs> because I yes. fear right now there are, you know, because we don't know, uh, you know, the teachers don't know what to do and people don't want to do the wrong things. And, and um, so sometimes, you know, I think opportunities aren't given for training in those sorts of things. Well, and Debbie, that kind of leads me to my next question for you. Like that sense of understanding that we have, um, that our professors and our, and our the directors that hire us don't know, how, how do you fight because I've encountered it, I've certainly encountered it in my professional career, and, I, and I'm um, willing to bet that you have as well. How do you fight that urge to just go, well, God damn it, you should know, like, just, you should, you should know these things, like, there's, right. the, because you know them about able-bodied people, and, and so why, why don't you know them about, like, how do you, how do you fight that urge? And more importantly, how do you turn that urge into advocacy? Right. Well, I guess I guess I um, I probably have a lot more patience with it because I used to be able-bodied and I get it. Right. Like I get that yeah. people know they're scared. They um, and and all the messages you get about disability if you don't have one are bullshit. Right. Like that, like that it's, it's terrifying and like yeah yeah we're either you're... tragedies or heroes. Right. We don't or, get to or... just be humans. Exactly, you know? exactly. And so, so people, I think people are scared of, of um, offending, are scared of not knowing how to, how to work with us, are scared of making assumptions that will make them look like assholes. Um, and so, so are we though. Well, so are we. Like, yeah. I mean, we all are. We all, we all step yeah. in it, you know, oh, yeah. in some way. We all have assumptions that we make about other people that are completely off base. And we, and we walk right into those assumptions and look like assholes. Um, yep. But I do feel like people are, you know, they're scared. They don't know what they can ask. They don't know what to ask. They don't know how much they can push. They don't know how much they have to accommodate. And they're worried that it's gonna, you know, it's gonna derail their vision or something. They don't, most of it is that they don't have faith in themselves and their own ability to adapt. And as people with disabilities, we know how to adapt. We know how to roll with it. We know how to find another way to accomplish the thing we need to do because the normal way doesn't work for us, right? And so we've developed confidence in our ability to adapt, to improvise, to, to find another way. And people who haven't had these challenges aren't confident in that ability. And that's why they're afraid of working with us. And so as, a, as an artist with disabilities, I just try to empower the people around me to, to know that they, they can do this. You know? They have the skills they need. They're creative thinkers, they're, they're improvisers. We can work together to problem solve these, these questions, you know? Yeah. And, and I always advocate for not seeing the disability as a problem that needs to be solved, but as an opportunity to find new solutions, right? So yeah. 
So, and that's what I call, like I call that cripping the work, right? So, I mean, I did a show in January where I was sort of a replacement for someone who had been hired and then dropped out. And uh, it was a one person show and it was conceived with an able-bodied person in the role. And, uh, and I had to just like, you know, level with the director and say, we can't work around my, we can't pretend my wheelchair isn't here. We can't yeah. try to work around it. We can't try to hide it. That's going to be bullshit. We have to look at what does my wheelchair give us that we wouldn't have if I was a, a biped, right? And so how are we going to incorporate this, this physical movement that I have, this way of moving into this production in order to make this production better? And we did. And I just had to like give it to the director and say, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to work around it. We're not going to see it as a problem. We're going to see it as an opportunity. And like the next day, he came to me with a new concept for the whole show that was amazing and, wow. and totally worked. And it was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And, Debbie, and you he wrote just a... needed to be empowered and, and, and challenged and, and, and given the opportunity to, to try new things. Yeah. Told that it was okay to be uncomfortable and to yeah. ask. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, a huge thing for a lot of people that we are afraid of saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. Like you said, like looking or sounding like an asshole or actually being an asshole by accident. Um, and so the easier thing is to just avoid it. So like just um, if I'm just not inclusive, if I just, you know, make a point of not working with anyone with disabilities, I won't make any mistakes around people with disabilities. Yeah. Um, clearly all of us on this podcast not our vision for the future <laughs> but <laughs> how so how can we or what would you say to those to like these really well-meaning people who who don't want to make mistakes uh or who don't want to say the wrong thing um right. who are afraid of you know looking for actors with disabilities or so, what would you say I, I think failure is the cornerstone of artistic exploration. And if you're not gonna get comfortable with failure, you're not gonna be a good artist. So, so you know, yeah. get on side, like just fail hard, fail often, fail yes. better. Yeah. You know, I really think that, that in within, especially within a creative pursuit, we have to create interdependence among all the people working on the piece, right? And, and interdependence doesn't mean that we help each other it also means equally that we demand help from each other or we require help from each other. And all of us are really comfortable at offering help. Not many people are very good at asking for help, right? And, <laughs> yeah. and yet, and I, I, I blame capitalism. I like to blame capitalism for lots of things, but I think capitalism tells us that strength is valuable, weakness is, is, has no value. But within interdependent systems, weakness is as valuable as strength and that we have to bring our need of each other into the space in order to build interdependence with that web of interdependence within a group and i saw that in in kill me now the web of interdependence built within that company of performers and and backstage crew was remarkable and that would not have happened without you there oh. because you're your vulnerability built that web. 
I Thank absolutely you. agree. And so it like, like I've never seen, and, and the work was like that, it changed the work on stage. Like the way that family gelled into a family. Yeah, would it not elevated. It elevated the artistic work of everybody on stage. Yeah. The yeah, that interde interdependence you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Ange, your uh, friendly technical producer, jumping in because that's what I can do because I have the fancy tools. Um, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for the conversation so far. Um, but uh, as, as you may or may not know, Debbie, um, something that um, consistently comes up um, in our conversations as we've been putting this podcast together and uh, in our time talking with other guests, um, the one thing that always comes up is you. <laughs> okay. It is. Um, so many of us have been um, uh, affected by the work that you have done as an artist for so many years now. Um, uh, and me specifically, the reason I'm back on stage, it's because of you. It's because of you. Because I didn't think that bodies like mine had a place on stage anymore. Mm -hmm. And you showed me otherwise. And I will always, always be grateful for that. That's not what this was about. Sorry, guys. It's okay. Um, one of the ways that I have found my way back on stage is through Sick and Twisted Theater, right. which is your theater company. Um, I would really love for you to talk a little bit about uh, Sick and Twisted and um, the role it plays uh, in your world and the role that it plays in, in, in the broader theater world. And my final piece to that is that there has actually been a statement that, that one of us in this interview has heard. And that statement was, Sick and Twisted exists now, so disabled artists have a place. Do we really need them on the other stages? Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <clears throat> That's really interesting. It is really interesting. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure uh, I have, uh, yeah. uh, I know what our, all of our answers are on that, yeah. but I would really love for you to speak to that sentiment in, in yeah. addition to talking about the, the importance of Sick and Twisted. So yeah. thank you all so much. I'm going to disappear again and go back to listening. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm going to say that uh, Obsidian Theatre exists. So why do black actors need to be on our stages? Native Earth exists. Why do indigenous actors need to be on our stages? Let's talk about whose stages we're talking about. Aren't they the stages that are for all of us? Aren't they like, don't, don't mainstream theaters want disabled people in their audiences? Don't they want BIPOC people in their audiences? Don't they want BIPOC people on their boards, disabled people on their boards or directing or in their offices? Like, give me a break. There's, you know, there's room for all of us in mainstream theater. That's why it's called mainstream. And the fact that we've been excluded from that is not a justification to continue to exclude people with disabilities from mainstream theaters. That's my rant. 
for that, first of all. Um, okay, so Love I want to talk about uh, Sick and Twisted a bit. Uh, so I started it because I felt like we needed to, first of all, develop more artists with disabilities to work in the theater and to uh, promote the idea of disability art in our community and to, and to um, create disability art that was, uh, that was not focused on therapeutic recreation, which is what a lot of uh, artistic programs for people with disabilities are, right? Um, and that is, a, that is a battle we continue to fight. Uh, we're still perceived often by people who don't know better as an organization that provides therapeutic recreational activities for people with disabilities. And that is not at all what we do. Um, I, I don't discount the value of that. That's just not my interest um, and not, not why I formed Sick and Twisted. I feel like uh, representations of disability in our culture are by and large directed towards people without disabilities and made by people without disabilities and rarely reflect the lived experience of disability. And so I feel like that does a disservice to all of us because all of us are temporarily, if we're able-bodied, we're temporarily able-bodied and our bodies will betray us, they will break down, they will not do what we want them to do at some point in our lives. And at that point, are we going to, if, if all we have about this, if all we know about disability is that now our lives are either a tragedy or we have to be a super crip and an inspiration to all, then, then that's the story we'll tell ourselves about who we are, right? Our stories form our beliefs and our beliefs guide our actions. And if we believe that disability makes us into one of those two things, either a tragedy or a hero, then that's what's going to guide our actions as we become disabled. But the truth of the lived experience of disability is neither of those things or both of those things and many other things as well, right? And so I feel like, I feel like the, the lived ex experience of disability needs a voice within our artistic product, our artistic uh, dialogue, I guess. And, and so I started Sick and Twisted in order to facilitate that part of the conversation. Um, in order to explore aspects of disability that weren't being explored by people without disabilities and to, and to find some authentic, authentic expression of the lived experience of disability and put that on stage. And when we did our first cabaret, um, so we, we, we did this cabaret, I, I put out a call for submissions to, to artists with disabilities to propose some kind of thing that they wanna do on stage, right? And uh, and then once I got everyone in the room, I was like, all right, here's the deal. You are not here to raise awareness about your disability. You are not here to complain about how hard it is to be disabled. You are here to provide something of value to the people in the audience who are gonna come here with all kinds of preconceived ideas about what disability means. And you're gonna tell them the truth about your lived experience of disability. And you're gonna tell them the truth because they need to know that because they don't know what their own bodies are capable of because they don't know what the lived experience of disability is, which is actually universal. So that's, that's what we did with our first cabaret and people's minds were blown. Like people came up to me after the show and said, 
I don't know what I thought I was coming to see, but it wasn't this, right? That's what I kept hearing. This is not what I expected to see. What they expected to see were people complaining about how hard it is to be disabled, people being inspirational or people raising awareness about their disability. And that's not what we delivered. We, we told people who they are. That's what we were there to do. And for me, that's kind of the difference between professional and amateur art. Amateur art is, is, and it has its place and it has value, but it is about serving the artist, right? About giving the artist an opportunity to express themselves or, or a, a chance to, to get up in front of an audience. But professional art is about serving an audience, about giving an audience an experience that they can't get in their daily lives. And so that's, that's why my focus always when we're, when we're doing work at Sick and Twist, always is on what are we giving the audience? How are we serving our audience? How are we using the lived experience of disability to unearth the truth of the human condition that we didn't have, that we wouldn't have without our disabilities? So that's, that's the goal of Sick and Twisted. Um, now, it's really interesting. Right now, I'm, I'm just going through a transition with Sick and Twisted because it's funny, Angela said, you know, Sick and Twisted is your company. And I know that's how it's perceived and that's how it's been for a while because I felt like, you know, we need to represent, like I have to get up on stage and represent disability because I have this privileged position of having all this training and experience as a performer and a disabled body. Like there aren't many of us that have both those things. And so I've got to be up on stage representing. But now we've been at it long enough that there are enough people who are like developing work and generating work as disabled performers that for the season I'm proposing, like this coming season, I am like completely in the background. I am just curating and facilitating and, and, and spotlighting everybody else. And I don't have to write, I don't have to perform because there are lots of other performers with disabilities in our community who can carry the spotlight and who can get out there and represent. And that is like, yes, it's working, you know? I'm like, I'm, I'm just <laughs> feeling like this was my goal. This was what I wanted to do. And now it's happening. And, and ultimately, I want to not be running this company soon. Like I, I want to start it. I want to get the wheels turning. I want to get it in motion. And I want to not be running it. I want to, you know, be like a, an advisor or a, you know, elder states person of the disability theater community, but not the, the founding artistic director yeah, on the yeah. website, but not the, yeah. yeah. But not the so, nuts and bolts person, yeah. I have a, I have a question for you, Debbie, if I may, yeah. um, around your, your, your sort of ethos, if I may, of, mm -hmm. of the, the professional art serving the audience. Um, this is something that I kind of struggle with, with the stuff that I write, because I don't often write a lot of content about disability it, it just happens to be stuff that features me in it and i have a disability so you know it's inherently there it's present it's part of the piece but my question is where do you land on this this idea of of um message theater i'll call it versus putting out a product that's good and entertains the audience and if it does that first um, and it does that well, the message will sort of come as a byproduct 
if yeah. the if the content is good first, where do you tend to to want or where do you think um, the 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 mediums that we work in should go? Do you think it should be message first um, or entertainment first, and then oops, I taught you something? I think it's. I I actually think that. Um... And I've worked in, in, in message theater for a while. I, I was the artistic director of the Popular Theater Alliance for a few years, which was a, you know, a theater for social justice. So, yeah. so and I, I definitely think that, that artistic choices rooted in um, political values are poor artistic choices. I feel like if we wanna make, if we wanna deliver a message, we have to first do good art and tell the truth. Um, yeah. And so, so telling the truth comes first, right? If we try to do a show about an issue, we won't, it, it ends up being superficial. You yeah. Can't, you can't dig deep, right? You have to, you have to go down into the, into the depths of the, the thing you're exploring in order to find the universal. And once you find the universal quality within that issue or that thing or that that idea that you're exploring, then it then it becomes art, right? Then it becomes something that that I can explore very specifically in my own experience and my own body. But if I go down deep enough, it becomes universal, and I offer something up to an audience that they have that they 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 know to be true, but hadn't realized. Yeah, you know? that's. That's what I refer to, and I and I said it in jest. It's it's obviously a much more important thing, but it that's the that's the old oops. I yeah. I taught you something. Yeah. And and that's that's where I tend to, to fall to is like, the art and and the narrative of the piece comes first, and if everything is done the way it should be, there's a point there that's being made. Yeah. Yeah, um, everything I, else is propaganda. Nice. And and, and I, theater I can be that. used as propaganda, but oh, it's sure. not it's not what you know what professional theater is about, what you're interested in pursuing, Debbie. No. Um what's no, the It's advertising. It's not it's not art, it's advertising. Yeah. That's what propaganda is, right? Not yeah, art. it's not art. Yeah. Um, so I have a, a couple of uh, questions, Debbie. In terms of auditioning uh, for mm. shows, since you have become, you know, as your body has changed and the way you access the world has changed, will you still go out and audition for roles that are not described as, you know, needing a person with a wheelchair, etc.? Yeah. And sometimes I know that there's no chance of, of like, it's not going to happen. You know, there's no way this director is going to cast me, but I will show up just to represent um, you know, and I'll do the work, like, <laughs> you know, I'll put the time in to prepare the audition, knowing that I'm not there to audition to get the role, I'm just there to represent, to say, remember, there are disabled people in the world, and we're actually good at stuff. <laughs> what? <laughs> Something that I, I'm passionate about is the, the idea that a role that may be apparently on this page for a, a typically abled person could be played by a person who has, you know, a, a different, all kinds of different mm -hmm. ways they might access the word they may be disabled or some other uh, 
thing, depending on how a person describes themselves, you can tell I'm super comfortable talking about this stuff, Debbie. <laughs> I usually don't have to name things. I just talk to people as people. It's much harder right. on a podcast where you have to, you know, name things. Anyway, right. uh, <laughs> um, uh, so I'm passionate about that, about the idea that you should be able to play any character, whether mm-hmm. or not uh, the character had previously been imagined as a wheelchair user, say. Can you talk about your thoughts on that and, and, and why? Yeah, well, like, like your speech pathologist friend who happens to be a wheelchair user, um, doesn't, doesn't that person deserve to see a speech pathologist on stage or on film who's a wheelchair user? Like, why do these two things have to be mutually exclusive? They're not in real life. So why can't they be, why, why do they have to be mutually exclusive on stage? There are wheelchair users in all walks of life, so to speak, to use an ableist expression. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're, they're vision impaired people doing all kinds of jobs, you know, being city councillors and what have you, right? There are deaf people who are lawyers, who are dentists, like why, why? Why do we have to be so limited on stage? You know, aren't we supposed to be imaginative people? You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're artists. We should be able to imagine that a speech pathologist could be in a wheelchair because in fact, that is a thing that can happen in the world. You know, like, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We could keep talking to you forever, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's Angela, your friendly technical producer, coming back. Um, Yes, we could talk all day, or or rather you could talk all day and I could happily listen. Um, But we are coming to the end of our time together on Disability Stage Right. This has been really great. Thank you so, so much, Debbie. My pleasure. Yeah, and thank you, Stephanie. And thank you, Miles. It's always good to get together in this virtual space together. I learn something every time. I definitely laugh and uh, usually at least once cry. (laughs) So um, your jobs are done. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Angela. It's mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. You create a beautiful welcoming Zoomer, I gotta say. Oh, Thank my you. internet connection's unstable again. Well, then it's just telling us it's that it is our time to say goodbye. <laughs>